Today on The Black Goat, we're going to talk about evaluating research without knowing the results. Can it be done, and is it better or worse? We'll debrief about APS and discuss a recent article in Slate about Daryl Bem's ESP research, and a letter about work-life balance. Can you make it in academia working 9 to 5? Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode nine of The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. With me, together in Alabama, are my co-hosts, Alexa Tullett. Hi, Alexa. Hi, Sanjay. And Samin Vizier. Hi, Samin. Hi, Sanjay. So you lucky to get to be together. I feel like we've done this before, where the two of you are together, and I'm always, like, the odd man out. Yeah, but you're going to be in Sacramento soon. That's true. Maybe we can do a special, uh, like black goat recording at uh arp that'll be fun yeah yeah um uh finally uh alexa are you gonna be at arp no oh, oh and for no. our listeners arp is the association for research and personality wait does, does anybody who doesn't already know that listen to our podcast i think so i think you overestimate people's familiarity with personality no i think i i, I might underestimate our reach beyond our friends but yeah. Uh, yeah well my mom doesn't know what arp is and she listens to this okay, podcast right. that was for my mom wait how does your, your mom doesn't know what arp is what what kind of how, there's too many she doesn't even know what spps is. She's, there's too many acronyms she at least knows what sips is right since you i can't it. even get sips right so i have a student going to sisp this summer and i literally <laughs> have to pause for like 30 seconds before i say the name of the place she's going it's if you're a personality and social psychologist there's just all these things with yeah this, this is always like the journal spps which is uh owned by spsp or partially owned and yeah, the S's and the P's. SPSP and then people use SPSS. SPSP. So you write an article, you analyze the data with SPSS, and you submit it to SPSP's <laughs> journal, SPPS. Uh, and if it doesn't get in there, maybe you submit it to PSPB. We need some new <laughs> letters, people. We need we need new letters in our field. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So Samin, you're you're fresh off of APS, the the Association for Psychological Science, right? Where we can yeah. uh, say that. Um, which used to be the American Psychological Society, and then they decided, decided that sounded too much like APA, and so they changed the name. Uh, but you're a bit just back from the conference, so how was it? Yeah, it was great. It was in Boston. Um, I thought it was really nice. There was a nice range of talks, like everything from just basic substantive talks and some more like bring the family type, like more accessible um, talks, and then a pretty uh, – like a growing and strong methods stream. So there's been a method stream at the APS convention for a number of years now, and it's really exciting to, like, at many of the time slots, there's a symposium or a talk on uh, methods and replicability, and there's a ton of workshops on methods, including on stuff on replicability. Tally Arconi did one on replicability. There was a JASP workshop, a lot of other cool things. Um, Amy Cuddy gave a talk in the presidential symposium that I thought was really really like useful and I don't know I thought it was a good talk that like gave us a lot of food for thought there was a lot of like analyses peak urban analyses of power posing studies and stuff like that which I thought like I came away with like a lot of uh questions and like a lot of more information than I've had I think at um yeah other discussions about power posing have not been as productive or fruitful I thought as her talk was Mm -hmm. um and we had an open science happy hour, 
Um, that was really, really successful. Tons of people came. It was really fun. I hope we'll do those at more conferences. It was like completely informal, not sponsored officially by any organization, although SIPs helped to advertise it. Um, and there were tons of excited people there. It was really fun to see. <laughs> and there were a lot of stickers going around. So there's a stat check sticker, which is really cool. That's and awesome. stat check itself is really cool too. But, <laughs> um, yeah, it was fun. Um, and then there was a lot of like, um, talk about the new APS journal amps, the advances mm -hmm. in methods and practices in psychological science, which I'm also affiliated with. Um, so that was fun. There was like a meet the editor session with Dan Simons and a lot of talk about that journal. I think there's a lot of excitement. The submissions are coming in quite rapidly, which is awesome. Yeah. So for people that don't know about it, AMPS is, I, I, I'm embarrassed. I can't even remember what it stands for. Um, Advances in Methods and Practices in Psychological Science. That's right. Oh, so, so it's an, more P's and S's, um, but they yeah. got an A in there. That's, uh, yeah. that's yeah. A, a good innovation. And it's kind of a, yeah, it's like APS's new sort of methods journal, but with more of a sort of meta science interest, yeah. I think, and it's going to have and, replications. So it's not, right. it's not just like psychological methods, which is the old right. APA journal. So yeah. the readership, we like want authors to target their papers for like a first or second year grad student, someone who's had a few stats classes, but not a quant person, like a substantive researcher. Basically, we want any APS member, you know, who's at least in grad school to be able to understand the paper, most of the papers in the journal. So it's not like psych methods in that sense. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, there's such a, I think there's so much room for that. And uh, I feel like perspectives on psychological science has been filling that niche. I think Bobby Spellman really made that an emphasis, which was awesome. And it's, uh, and, you know, kudos to her for like, saying, I'm going to do this and showing that there's, you know, real interest on it so much that, that APS wanted to pick that up and, and make it into a real journal of its own. So that's awesome. Yeah. 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 Cool. Collabor also has a methods and practices section. So I think it's starting to be a thing. I mean, I think that this is a huge gap, right? There, there's like quant journals and there's substantive journals and there's no place for people who aren't like deriving things or doing simulations, but just like want to do meta science or write about best practices or write about what people are actually doing, not just the platonic ideal of how mediation should be done, but like, let's look at what people are actually doing. And yeah, um, there so, was yeah. a, there was a really neat article in, in psychological methods actually a few years ago. Um, I blogged about it uh, a while ago, but it's uh, this guy, Donald Sharp. And he coined this term mavens, and uh, um, and the idea was uh, the title of it was why the resistance to statistical innovations bridging the communication gap, and it was explicitly about this gap between the sort of like basic research in methods and psychometrics, like the people who capital Q capital P quantitative psychologists they publish sort of new methods and that kind of thing, and then they they don't get taken up all the time. And Sharp's argument was that there is this kind of middle group of people who they're not creating those new innovations, but they read those journals, they get interested in them, and when they figure out a cool application or they translate it, that's when they take off. Um, I think Daniel Lockins is a really good example of someone like that. He, mm -hmm. you know, he wrote that great article about sequential analysis. He didn't do any original quantitative or not very much original quantitative research, but he took this thing that like psycho social psychologists didn't know about and he wrote about it in a really compelling way. And it sounds mm -hmm. like AMPS is going to be kind of a lot of that, like a sort of <laughs> translational journal mm -hmm. for, for applied 
people who are actually going to use these methods. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, so Alexa, did you uh, have as much FOMO as I did uh, watching Twitter and everybody tweeting about APS in Boston? I. I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're like having fun, having your own life. I think that I probably look at Twitter maybe like 2% of the amount of time that you look at Twitter. That probably (laughs) explains our relative mental health quite a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was just looking. This has happened the last couple of times. I feel like APS has gotten cool again. Like for a while, like nobody was going to APS and now... Like, there's all this, you know, I see, maybe it's because of social media. Maybe it was always this way, but, like, I feel like there was this period of time where, you know, none of the people that I interacted with were really going to APS. And I went once or twice in that period, and it was, like, hard to find things I wanted to go to, which is really Mm -hmm. a a weird experience at a conference. But now I look at the program, and I see people talking about it on social media, it's like, the first oh, time I went um, to APS, before I had ever gone, somebody told me that the, when they went to APS, there was a chocolate fountain. <laughs> and so every time APS happens, I have a little bit of FOMO because I'm like, what if there's a chocolate fountain and I'm not there? Uh, that's, uh, do, they, do they have a chocolate fountain, Samin? I don't know. I missed uh, the reception where that might have happened. Yeah. So I don't actually know. I think we would have heard about it, though, with Twitter. If that's there was true. One. It would have been like uh, all, all alert, yeah. But I think I want to give big props to the program committee because I think the fact that, you know, you're missing, you're, you have FOMO about it is, uh, so Lonnie Shioda was the program chair this year and then Liz Page Gold was the chair of the methodology track. Jess Tracy was the chair of the social, oh no, the personality and emotions track. Anyway, so there was, um, there was some great content. Yeah, yeah that's, that, I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, I think uh, um, that's that's right. I mean, I remember them like, you know, actively I think uh, you know I heard about all three of them kind of like actively going out and trying to gin up really good uh content for the the conference and and yeah credit to all three of them um cool and uh, there's other people on the program committee too I just yeah. blinking on yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well we'll hear from them they'll... <laughs> yeah, yeah, <all> right. <laughs> no um so we wanted to we wanted to chat a little bit about um uh, this this really interesting article that was kind of making the rounds on social media by Dan Engber at Slate, um, where he wrote about uh, Daryl Bem's ESP research. And the title, I, I always assume that journalists don't actually choose the names of their articles and that it's some, like, copy editor who's... Uh, um, uh, whose job is to like gin up clicks, but you know, the title was provocative. It was like Daryl Bem proved ESP is real, showing that science is broken, or something like that. But if we ignore the title, it was it was kind of about Daryl Bem and his ESP research and some interesting inside information. But there was this one quote, right, that was getting uh, um, people sort of were were discussing quite a bit uh, on social media. Um, and why, why don't I read it? Um, this is about, I think it was about two-thirds of the way through the article, and this is a quote of Daryl Bem. So Bem says, I'm all for rigor, but I prefer other people do it. I see its importance, it's fun for some people, but I don't have the patience for it. Um, and then this is Engber. It's been hard for him, he said, to move into a field where the data count for so much, talking about uh, parapsychology. And then Bem again. If you looked at all my past experiments, they were always rhetorical devices. I gathered data to show how my point would be made. 
I used data as a point of persuasion, and I never really worried about will this replicate or, not, or will it not. So that was the quote, and people were, uh, yeah, there was a lot of discussion about that on social media, this idea of data as rhetorical device, as a point of persuasion, uh, um, yeah. Uh, and people, the, the people idea were having strong reactions to that. Oh, sorry. The idea that the concern about replicability is optional. Like, it's fun for some people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't find it fun, so I'm not too worried about it. Um, yeah. I got into a little bit of a back and forth with Dan Engber on Twitter because he was pointing out that, you know, Daryl Bem deserves a lot of credit for actually helping other people to investigate his claims, you know, being transparent, engaging in adversarial collaborations. And Dan pointed out correctly that Daryl was doing this way before many of us even thought about it. And and way before, you know, most people are still not doing it now. So his practices are actually quite good and much better than most of us, including people who are uh, pushing for these practices. Um, but I think what's interesting is that he's revealing how he thinks in a way that we rarely get to see this right. window into how people think. And what I said to Dan Engber is that, like, I agree that Daryl Bem deserves a lot of praise for his practices, and that's probably more important than what he's revealing in these comments, but there are other people who don't share his practices, who have like more status quo practices, who probably share some of his beliefs that he's expressing in these kinds of quotes, where those people, it's more interesting, right? It's like, well, okay, if you're, if you're sharing your data and you're engaging adversarial collaborations, okay, I don't care that you don't think that you prioritize replicability because actually your actions do make replicability a priority. Um, But it's the people who aren't doing those things. And then we want to understand why, why they're, against doing these things or don't want to do these things. And this gives us a window into that, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, one of the times that caring about replicability and stuff like that can be frustrating is when there are people who claim that everybody cares about these issues and we all understand that this is important and the field is changing. And so we don't need to worry about it that much. Um, and I think that, uh, explicit statements like that highlight the fact that there may actually be sort of like basic disagreements about, what our goals are as psychologists. And so like this quote reminded me of a quote from a paper that I assign in my graduate social psych class from um, Lee Ross, Mark Lepper, and Andrew Ward's chapter about um, the history of social psychology that came out in 2010. Um, And they say that social psychologists have long wrestled with a fundamental issue of self-definition and self-presentation. To what extent is our field more akin to the physical sciences, wherein the goal is the development of increasingly powerful general theories and abstract statements of lawful relationships? And to what extent is a task we are engaged in more akin to that of philosophers and even dramatists, whose goal is to provide a compelling and accurate account of the behavior of people in the context of society? And to me, that's like, that's a really interesting distinction because... Um, if it is true that people fall on one side or the other of that divide, then I think people who fall on those opposite sides really do have different goals. And there is a fundamental difference in, in that sort of kind of self-definition. Yeah. I mean, I think what was, what was interesting, this quote was kind of the linchpin for this sort of interesting arc that the article really points out, which is how, you know, the, the sort of data as rhetoric, data as sort of persuasive device, not caring about replicability. Daryl Bem's sort of talking about that in his earlier life as a mainstream social psychologist, and he's saying when he got into parapsychology, 
ironically, because parapsychology is under so much scrutiny, because so many people are super skeptical of it, that that's when he had to start sharing his data and publishing every detail of every procedure and all this other stuff. And you can, you know, people will debate whatever, you know, the quality of that work, but that he's kind of saying like, yeah, I never had to do this before I got into this area that was under so much scrutiny. And, you know, I think Bem has this real, uh, I, I, Bem comes across in the articles very sympathetic and I think rightly so. Um, he, you know, people talk about the BEM chapter about writing as like, oh my God, I can't believe people did that. But he's always been just very upfront. I think that's another example of it about things that other people kind of try to be furtive about. So, you know, he's just saying, yeah, this is, this is what I, you know, this is how I approached it. Like I'd come up with an interesting idea and then I'd like, you know, scare up some data to try to, you know, back up the point. And I, I do think that that, that sort of storytelling tradition, that showman tradition, has a long history in social psychology. The idea that you come up with some provocative point. It can be provocative, or not just sort of like some some idea with legs in some way. It might be because it's counterintuitive. It might be because it sort of reinforces some social message or something. And then you kind of like, you know, very carefully craft an experiment that will sort of back it up as a kind of demonstration of it. And this goes beyond replicability because you can carefully craft a highly replicable experiment um, that, you know, seems to show a point, but the experiment may not be generalizable. It may not be, you know, it, it there may be sort of features of it that make it not falsifiable in a very good, good way or not capable of falsifying the point. Um, and I think that, you know, I think what's really cool about the BEM quote is that it, it kind of like he's just being, you know, he's wearing that on his sleeve. He's not pretending that he's he wasn't doing that in the earlier part of his career. Yeah, I think that I've had several people um, ask me after this article came out who aren't like who are kind of trying to figure out where they stand on replicability or maybe are outside of psychology and trying to understand. And they asked me, well, isn't this actually evidence that everything is working fine? Because look, we all reacted to this. We all, you know, didn't just by it wholeheartedly. And so I, I haven't responded yet to all that. And I, I might write something more about this, but I think that that's a very idealistic idea that I don't share. I don't think this is like evidence that we're, everything's right. And the peer review process is working because really like this is one of the only cases where there was consensus that post-publication peer review was a good thing, that, you know, it's a good thing that he shared his data, that, yeah, there was some fishy use of covariates and different sample sizes across studies and whatever, when so many other papers have those characteristics and they're, that those criticisms are not welcome when it's not about ESP. And this was JPSP, right? I mean, there's so many reasons why it's not okay that this happened this way. Like, it's better. It could have been worse. Absolutely. We could have just been like, oh, okay, ESP is real. Let's keep moving along. That would have been worse, in my opinion. But, like, the fact that it took this right. to happen for us to react this way and that, that that reaction has not spread, it's still not okay to post-publication critique a paper as much as this one has been critiqued and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, you could, right, you could look at the at Bem saying that and the reaction to it and say, oh, that means nobody's doing this. But I, I don't think that's right. I think what it means is, like, he's stating plainly what people are doing. And, and like you said, Alexa, that quote from 
the chapter about the history of psychology of social psychology where they talk about the sort of the kind of natural scientist approach versus the sort of dramatist approach um yeah it's it's you know Bem's kind of bringing out what we're what we're doing and you know people have speculated I don't believe this at all people have speculated though that his ESP article was really like some you know intentional kind of like thing mm-hmm. to make us confront our you know shortcomings and our methods and that kind of thing I, I don't think he, I think he really was sincere I don't I've never met Daryl Bem but I have no reason not to believe that um, but the fact that people are are saying like, oh, maybe this was some like, you know, false flag operation or something, I think just goes to show how that point you made to mean that like, it had that effect, whether he he meant it to or not, it's had that effect. And, you know, the fact that it took something like that, uh, I I think does, yeah, does say something. Yeah, right. Well, cool. Should we, uh, we have a letter. Should we read our letter? Let's read the letter. Let's read the letter. All right, letter time. I feel like we we're still we're still new at this podcasting thing. We need like transitions. We need like <laughs> like a break or like letters music. I was thinking. Like, I think the, actually we do movie. have a system for transitions, which is that you talk about how we're awkward at them, and then we. Like, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, after the letter's over, I'm going to talk about how we're awkward at transitioning to our main topic. So that's coming up, folks. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so here's the letter. Um, Dear the Black Goat, I started tracking how much time I spend actually working on my PhD, or at least on topics and tasks related to it, and how much time I spend procrastinating. On the surface, this was encouraging, as I realized that I don't really do anything but work while I'm at university. What is incredibly discouraging, however, is that I still can't keep up with the workload. As I have kids and an extremely supportive but full-time working partner, uh, my time at work is basically a 9-to-5 job, without much possibility of working longer hours. By the time I get home, the kids are in bed, I'm too tired to continue working. I know that the general research culture is to complain and boast about the hours spent at the lab, working on weekends and during holidays, and every single time I hear somebody doing that, I just get jealous. I just can't do that, and I feel that without working extra hours, my PhD will never get done. Signed, Daytime Only PhD. So you guys don't have kids i do so i'm curious uh do you actually work productively 80 hours a week 80 so that's the joke which i i used to laugh at and now i've grown to dislike and even resent yeah. a little bit yeah. they're, they're like academia you can work any 80 hours a week you want to yeah. right ha 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 but it, you know the sort of underlying message is like yeah people are working 80 hours a week yeah No, I think I mentioned this before, but I kept track of how many hours I worked a week for like six weeks or so. And it was like maybe 50. It fluctuated like it was over 40, but it wasn't like a ton over 40. But my Mm -hmm. first reaction to this letter is that absolutely only working nine to five is a huge disadvantage, not because of the number of hours that allows. It's because what if you have a headache or what if you slept poorly last night or what if you're devastated because you got a nasty email from an ex or whatever? If that happens to me. I can not work from nine to noon and right. like recover, watch some bachelorette and then make that up on the weekends or evening. So like, it's not that I work more hours than nine to five. It's that I give myself a shitload of flexibility to like, if I don't feel like it, I won't push myself because I know I'll be more productive later when I do feel like it. Um, and that works really well for me. Maybe that's an illusion, but I feel like I know when I'm going to be productive and I know when I'm not. And because I have flexibility, I can be, very efficient when I do work. 
And someone who doesn't have that flexibility is at a huge, huge disadvantage. I'm, I'm laughing because I'm imagining the 99% of the population that works nine to five hearing this and yeah, I know. rolling their eyes at us. I know. It's a huge advantage. I don't take it for granted. Like every time I have a migraine, I'm like, thank God. Like I'm so lucky that I can take some time off and make up for it another time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I would say the the letter writer says that they're, they, they kept track of their hours and that they're actually being productive nine to five. I would say if you're working nine to five and being productive nine to five, you're doing really well. And the people that are boasting about like working 70 or 80 hours a week, maybe they're sitting in their office or in front of their computer 70 to 80 hours a week. They're not being productive 70 to 80. Yeah, I agree. And I think that like, Um, one thing that the letter writer points out is that, you know, we have a research culture about complaining and boasting about the the hours that we spend at work. And so I think if the letter writer is feeling like they're falling short because they're comparing the hours that they work to the hours that other people say they're working, then I think they can relax because probably, right, if you are working solidly without procrastinating, oh my God, from nine to five. Yeah, that's every... way more than other people actually work. <laughs> yeah, then then like you're doing great. But if the letter writer is saying, I am working this much, but I'm not showing the signs of productivity than other people are showing, then, you know, that's when I think, A, we have to start considering things like what Samin is saying, that you, you probably are at a disadvantage because you don't have that flexibility and you can't like use, yeah, weekends to catch up or um, evenings to catch up. And also just that, you know, um, there are so many things that contribute to success besides, um, how much you work, although how much you work is one of the few things that you have a ton of control or that you have some control over. Yeah. I mean, so I, I went through the transition from being more like how Samin described, uh, um, to having a kid and being, trying to be somewhat more structured. And, you know, I made, I made a commitment when my son was born. I said, I'm, I'm going to block off periods of time and not work during those periods of time, which, you know, previously, like before I was a parent, I would just kind of like work when I had the energy and the inclination. And so I'd work at weird hours and whatever. And, you know, and I, I do have to say going through that transition was very difficult. And in some ways I feel like I, I still feel like I didn't make it perfectly. I, you know, seven years ago or whatever, I still, struggle a lot with it. Um, but you know, if, yeah, like if, if I could be productive nine to five, you know, I, I, that's what I still struggle with is like my, my old habits of like, well, I can procrastinate cause I can always like fire up the computer at 10 o'clock tonight. If I've got energy again, it's like, I never have energy again at 10 o'clock at night now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, like that's, I mean, people say, you know, who go through that transition, like if they go through it successfully, a lot of times what they say is like, oh, I just got really efficient about my time. Like I would actually, when I get into my office, I'd sit down and start working. Um, and so I, yeah, I think I really strongly suspect this is what you said, Alexa, which is like, because this is what everybody does in graduate school, which is, you know, the reality of what you're doing. So this goes beyond like hours and kids, right? Like, you know, the reality of what you're doing. And you know the verbalized, self-presentational version of what everybody else is doing, and that's your comparison. And mm-hmm. this is one case of that. And so, yeah, I would say that like working an actual productive forty hours a week 
this student is probably on par with everybody else who's like fucking around on the internet and like at work but takes an hour and a half to go get coffee with a friend and you know um or you know watches netflix on their laptop when nobody else yeah, is in the right. office or whatever whatever people do to to procrastinate mm-hmm. yeah so yeah. yeah i think there's also huge individual differences in efficiency so it's so hard to compare like someone who spends eight hours a day quote unquote working you know, there's days where I have an eight-hour workday and I get so much done that I get more done than I did in the previous three weeks put together. Mm-hmm. And then there's days when I spend eight hours honestly working, not procrastinating, and I get much less done. Yeah. yeah. So, and I get, I think we all get better at this with age and experience. I'm, I know better when I'm going to be productive and when I'm not, and I'm better, oh, more productive overall with the same amount of time. The other thing I think some people learn and may or may not be true across different labs and so on is that like I learned that like there's some deadlines I'm just not going to make and I try to be honest when I anticipate that um but that's also like not the end of the world in a lot of cases um in some cases it is so you have to be careful but like learning that what what so this person writes I can't keep up with the workload and I'm wondering are they just beating themselves up for things that everybody is a little bit behind on or are they really not keeping up with things that are really important to keep up with and I don't know yeah yeah, I, I mean, I think it's important to to like to have someone who can give you an unbiased reality check, and maybe mm-hmm. that's an advisor. Not all advisors, you know, there are some who are like you're supposed to be in the lab 24 hours a day or whatever. But if mm-hmm. if you have a sane advisor who can look at your actual progress, not not your input but your output, and can say like, you know, for how long far along you are, this is actually pretty good because that's really hard for graduate students to judge for themselves because again you 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 know the social comparison demons will just point you in the wrong direction and you know you'll always feel like you're not doing as well as somebody else seems to be um and so you know finding someone that is going to understand who's who's not going to like just assume that you're not getting stuff done if they know that you have a family but who's going to actually look at like what you've done that can be really helpful to get a reality check Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I see this all the time. We have advising committees in my department, so every student has three faculty on their advising committee, and we meet once a year. And I see this happen all the time where students always feel like, you know, I've never had a student come in, thank goodness, actually, because then we'd have a raging narcissist on our hand. But I've never had a student come in and say, like, I'm kicking ass and I'm doing better than everyone else in the program. Like, nobody mm-hmm. ever feel, nobody ever claims to feel that way. Um, maybe mm-hmm. some, some do, but they know not to say it. But, like, all the time I have students who are like, I just, you know, I look at the other students or I look at the faculty and I can't imagine, blah, blah, blah. And it's like... I look at those students, I'm like, you're doing awesome. And Mm -hmm. I mean, not always, not every student is awesome, but a lot of them are. I just had a meeting this week where I was like, you're doing great. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, you know, we we try to give students that feedback, but I realize not everyone has access to someone who will give them that kind of unvarnished sort of honest feedback. I also think it's important to say, at least this is my opinion, that you can absolutely get a PhD with a nine to five schedule. So I had friends in grad school who had kids and who tried to stick to that kind of schedule and they were successful and they have great jobs that they're happy with and productive and so on. So I hate the idea of people listening and thinking, oh, well, if I have obligations or preferences such that I would only work nine to five, then I shouldn't Mm -hmm. even try. I don't think that's the case. I actually, 
Uh, I think that I only got my PhD done by treating it like a nine to five job. So when I started doing my PhD, I guess I was more in like an undergraduate mentality or whatever. And I was like, okay, well, I don't have specific hours. So, you know, if somebody wants to like go, I don't know, to the beach one day, I'll go because that's like, you know, I can do there that. I don't in have Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> They're really far from Toronto and they suck. I hate going to the beach actually. Um, but yeah, uh, so I got to the point where I realized that that flexibility was totally getting in my way. And so I just started to treat it like a nine to five job. And I would like make sure that I got to my office at nine and then I worked until five and I didn't procrastinate very much. And that, then that was like, I was way more productive that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wish, I kind of wish I had <laughs> discovered that in graduate school because like I said, I had to do that when I had a kid and it was, I think for me, it was because having a kid was like, this is, I was like, this is important. And so I need to say like, okay, these hours I'm going to spend with my son. Um, and like, I, I think maybe I could have earlier on said that my personal time, my sanity time, my leisure, whatever, I could have taken the same kind of attitude towards and said, okay, that means I have to like be productive this block of time. And then what I get out of that is that I get to, um, you know, I get to have unfettered leisure time, which, you know, is, which you don't get when you have that, like, I'll work when I feel like it. And then I'll always feel like I should be working kind of thing. I don't know. I've gotten, I think I've gotten to the space where I tell myself I'll work when I feel like it. And when I don't feel like it, I can like turn off a mental switch and enjoy. Yeah. Like, I think I do prioritize my leisure time and so on, but while still having a completely flexible like no no routine whatsoever like I have no idea when the next time is that I'm going to sit down and catch up on x but I know that it's going to happen within the next four or five days and if it's not today then it'll have to be one of the other days yeah. but I think I'm probably an exception and maybe other people shouldn't try to <laughs> do that I don't know don't try to be like and it's taken me a long time like I do think I used to have the like guilt yeah. in the back of my mind all the time and I think I've gotten I've trained myself to try to be able to turn that off but yeah I think I think being having more experience and also just having more stature gives you like right. having mm-hmm. tenure having a job it's yeah kinda, helps you be less anxious about that mm-hmm. yeah cool well, I hope we've I hope we've helped uh, daytime only PhD DOP. We should uh, encourage people who write us letters to come up with funny acronyms for their sign offs so that we can refer to them. <laughs> I feel like we kept saying the letter writer, the letter writer instead of yeah, like yeah, yeah. And this person was daytime only PhD, which is oh, we could have said DOP or DOP, but like if you can come up with a really cool acronym, we'll probably bump your letter to the top. So <laughs> totally, pay yeah. attention, folks. Um, so which I should just mention if if people do want to write to us letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com um, that's the the way to get one of these to us or you can DM us on Twitter or Facebook message us or whatever um, but we uh, we really do appreciate either letters for this segment or just like any kind of feedback cool well our main topic for today that we wanted to talk about was the idea of uh, evaluating research without knowing the results and I think it's it's interesting and it's relevant. Uh, it's becoming very relevant in part because of registered reports, right? So this new idea, which I think has been kicking around for a long time in various forums. I mean, it's not like somebody just thought of this for the first time a couple of years ago. Um, but this idea of it's now being implemented and 
Chris Chambers, I think, has really been innovating on this within psychology and sort of organizing around it. But the idea that you would go through at a journal the peer review process before you've done the experiments. You'd write the intro, you'd write the methods, or you, you, know, you would kind of say, like, here's what I'm going to do and here's why. Um, and, then, uh, um, uh, and then that would be peer-reviewed. And then it's, it's, if it's, it's con- there's like a conditional acceptance after that. And basically the conditional part is, did you actually execute on what you said you were going to do mm-hmm. um, or come close enough to it? Uh, but if you did, then regardless of what the results are, it gets accepted and gets published. And that's now starting to be taken up. Uh, um, I can't even keep track now. I should like should have kind of looked at Chris's Twitter feed because he mm-hmm. tweets about every time a new journal uh, adopts this, and I feel like I see a new tweet about it every like. I think week yeah, I think it's like fifty journals at least. Yeah, it might even be over sixty now. Yeah, so we kind of wanted to talk about this uh, not just registered reports specifically as a publication avenue, although that's important, but also at a more kind of like conceptual level right it's like what's it what does it mean to evaluate research without looking at the results is that a good idea um uh, chris will will send us many angry tweets if we don't say it is but we should feel feel free to to go that route if we want to well one thing in favor so i think we're we're going to end up talking about the sort of nuances of why you might be in favor of this or not um but of course a huge benefit of doing things this way is that as a researcher you can write about the results of your experiment in a way that is much more um, objective and removed. Um, so I, um, my one of my graduate students did a replication of um, somebody else's research, and they did it for a special issue of JRP. Um, and so it was kind of this format of registered reports, like we said how we were going to do the replication, um, and basically got a conditional acceptance. Um, and then working with him to write up the results felt amazing. Like I felt, you know, like a real scientist. Like I was just trying to describe exactly what we found um, and not like motivated to, you know, highlight some results and not others and not, you know, try to like make excuses for things that didn't work. Um, so, I mean, it's a, that's a, a huge pro, I think, to the idea of results blind. So let me, um, let me ask. So I haven't I haven't been through this. So it's really interesting that you have. I'm I'm curious if you sort of introspect on the experience, like how much of it? Because there there's a couple potentially a couple different motivations that might sort of bias us when we write up results, right? W- one is just wanting to get it published, and yeah. so you have to kind of like tart up your results to make them look really sexy and that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But then the other is that you might have a commitment to some idea because it's your theory or because it's your, you know, for whatever reason, like you, you might, you know, uh, uh, apart from wanting it to be published, you might want the results to come out a certain way for other reasons. Did mm-hmm. you, wait, because this was like a replication, did you, did you feel like you had some investment, so, some of that other kind of personal investment in it coming out a certain way, or did you not have to deal with that? I think in this case, so we were replicating somebody else's finding. Um, so I think probably I had both sources of motivation mostly removed. Although I will say that when I, I think I'm remembering this correctly, when we went into this, um, I thought that the finding was totally sensible. Like I didn't, I, I didn't think, 
I thought it would be totally reasonable for us to find the same thing that the original paper had found. Um, so, but yeah, I wasn't particularly invested in it. Okay. Um, and so then when I was evaluating the results, I thought, when I say like, I felt like a real scientist, I really felt like I was looking at the data and thinking, okay, well, given that we found this, like, what, what does this mean? Like, why might we not have found what the original researchers found? Um, so I felt that I could just be much more open to what the data were telling us, um, than I usually do. Yeah. Yeah. And we talk a lot about, um, confirmation bias on the part of researchers that they want to find a certain thing, but we also, I think, forget that editors are biased and, and so it's really, I think it's really hard to ask yourself as an editor, what would I have thought, or as a reviewer, what would I have thought if this had come out a different way? And so registered reports are a way to kind of tie your hands as a reviewer and editor to say, okay, I don't know how it's going to come out, but I have everything I need to know to know if this is a solid study, you know, barring a few like manipulation checks or data quality checks, stuff like that. You can know ahead of time if you think it's a good design, an adequate sample size, the measurements are validated measures that are, are measuring what they claim to measure, et cetera. Um, and uh, at, at APS, Liz Tenney reminded me of this other bias, outcome bias, which is just a more general yeah. form of confirmation bias, which is like if you, you're, sh you're supposed to be evaluating the process, but then you use the outcome as a way to determine the quality of the process. And so what's really neat about this approach is that if really, and this is debatable, right, is the goal of publishing decisions and reviews and so on to be evaluating the quality of the methods and the process and not the result, in which case we should really be doing registered reports or results-blind reviewing. But maybe that's an extreme claim. There's there's probably ways in which that extreme claim isn't mm -hmm. true, but it's probably a lot more true than we've acknowledged. Like we've probably strayed pretty far from evaluating the process and have just started using the results as our basis for evaluation a lot more than we should. Right. Yeah. I will say like that, um, <coughs> just to sort of play devil's advocate, that there was definitely a part of me because of the particular kind of data that we collected and how we analyzed it that was um, like something that was kind of new to us. I did think, you know, like because we're not getting the same results, are we really doing it right, you know? And so I wasn't, I wasn't totally removed from using the results as like um, an indicator of whether we had done things right. Like I couldn't totally separate myself from that, which I think this is maybe something that we'll talk about might not be um, totally misguided to think that the results can tell you something about whether the whether you executed the process correctly. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, one of the things that this has the potential to do, whether you're doing formally through a registered reports process or just taking seriously the idea that you're going to treat the results as results either way, is that ideally it makes you, and maybe this is different in a replication, right? But I, ideally it makes you, it should make you design the research differently because you want to design it in a way that any possible results would be informative. Um, and so, you know, this, this idea that this sort of like the heads I win, tails you lose kind of approach where you say like the manip, if, how do I know that the manipulation worked because it, got a significant effect. And if it didn't get a significant effect, maybe it's because the hypothesis wasn't correct, or maybe it's because this manipulation didn't work. And so how do you get out of that? Will you validate the manipulation in a separate study, or you include a positive control 
where something that you know the manipulation is supposed to affect and you have that as a randomized condition or there's other ways to build that in. And, and likewise, I mean, power and sample size become really important now, right? Because you, uh, if you get a null result and you have the same error rate uh, of type 2 errors as you do as type 1 errors, then you can, you know, it's a symmetric decision, as a, or if you use Bayes factors or something like that, you can analyze the data in a way that will, you know, will potentially be informative either way. But we or don't equivalence testing that was or equivalent. Daniel. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, um, yeah. And so it's, uh, um, you know, I think there are ways to think about like results-free, informative design that we're just not in the habit of doing, right? Like you, you come up with some nifty new way of manipulating a variable and then you immediately go out and run the study that would be real, would seem really cool if it gets you the effect. And you don't, you know, it's very easy. And I think we're more likely to do this with manipulations than with measures. Like we have a much better tradition, at least in personality psychology, but I think social psychology too, like of doing validation studies of a lot of our measured variables. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't, even though construct validity applies just as well to manipulations, I think a lot of times we come up with a procedure and they're like, and then we're like, if it gets a significant effect, it, then it was a good manipulation. And if it doesn't, then maybe it wasn't. And, and so we'll dismiss a null result as a methodological failing. but we'll Or it was a bad experimenter, or it was a right, long right, time yeah, of yeah, year, yeah. or, yeah, not just so, manipulation. Yeah, and so so committing to, like, accepting the outcome, no matter what, requires you to design research. And so you have to really think ahead and say, like, if this gets a null result, am I going to believe that the effect is, or that the hypothesis was not correct, or the effect was yeah. not correct? If the answer is no, I've... then maybe you yeah. should design the work differently. Right. Or you do some more preliminary work, when to, to, but the goal should be to get to that point. The yeah. goal should be to get to a point where you feel confident designing a study that you're going to believe the result either way. I think it's fine if you're not there yet. If you're studying a new topic where you're not sure which is the best measure or you're not sure if your, your experimenters are trained well enough yet or if you have intercoder agreement yet, that's fine. So then do more work until you get to that point. But the goal should be yeah. to be confident enough that you could design a study that you would pre-commit to believing the result whatever way it comes out yeah i've had um a couple of experiences recently in like thesis and dissertation meetings where people's results didn't turn out the way that they hypothesized so they get null results for things where they thought they would get an effect and i like i always ask those students okay well given that you like designed your study this way and you had this hypothesis and then you got this result what do you think now and a few times the students respond by trying to tell me like what was wrong with their experiment. And I think they're just programmed to do that, right? Like they are so reluctant to say, I think maybe, maybe I was wrong. Um, or we don't spend enough time on the design side that that is a valid reaction, true. but then we should, we need to fix that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I think, I, I, I think that that's, that's a very natural reaction. I think it's pretty universal, right? So you can, I, I suspect that people in every field struggle with this. I mean, this is, you know, you can go to philosophy of science and someone like Lakatos, who talks about, you know, sort of progressive and degenerative amendments to theories and this idea that, like, if you're always crediting the theory when things work out and blaming the auxiliary assumptions when they don't, that you've, you, you're not making progress. Right. And Lakatos wasn't talking about psychology. He wasn't really a fan of psychology. He was saying, like, he was identifying this as an important issue in, in 
you know, natural sciences and, and you know, physics and that kind of thing. So I, th- mm-hmm. I think that's a very natural thing to want to be like, I agree. If yeah. it goes the way I wanted to, it's confirmation bias. If it goes the way I wanted <laughs> to, then I was right. And if it doesn't go the way I wanted to, then there must be a reason. It's also just laziness that's encouraged by the field. So like, we know people disattenuate their correlations because of low reliability. And it's like, okay, going into it, I'm going to use a, an unreliable measure because then if it does work, then mm-hmm. great. And if it doesn't, then I said, oh, well, this was a really conservative test because I used an unreliable measure. And mm-hmm. that drives me nuts, but I also think that that's what's encouraged and rewarded in a lot of ways. So we just need yeah. to, we need to put rewards and incentives on the design and method side, not just on the outcome side. I, yeah. I, I, as an aside, I had a lab meeting recently where I made my my lab listened to me rant about uh, why I hate disattenuation. Yes, I want to hear that rant. (laughs) (laughs) We'll save it for some other time. Wait, Uh, also, it's pronounced Lakatosh? I think so. I used to, I always used to say Lakatos, and then uh, I was talking to uh, a philosopher friend, Mark Alfano, and I was like, how do you say it? And he's like, Lakatosh? And I was like, okay, I'm going to change that now. So, cause I'd only ever, I only knew it from reading meal and, and then, yeah, right. and then after meal, like reading, but I only knew it from reading. You mean Mechel? Mechel. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. I've been saying meal wrong. <laughs> yeah. So okay. something I wanted to, that's a really interesting comparison. I just wanted to sort of briefly mention, um, cause I think it's kind of an interesting how, I and mean, we're talking about sort of reinforcing people, right? Like, so I started playing poker a few years ago, and uh, um, you know I knew I didn't know shit about poker, and so I was like trying to read up about it, and so I like got a couple books, but I also would like look at internet forums about poker just to sort of learn about it. And one of the things that's really interesting, so people, what people in poker do, and this is like the way people get better at poker is they talk about specific hands that they played. So they'll say like. I, I played this hand, I had these cards, these cards came on the flop, blah, blah, blah. One of the things that in, in these pokers, there's a very strong ethos that when you do that, so when you post a hand that you played and then try to get feedback about how you played it, you're not only are you not supposed to talk about the results, you're not supposed to post the results. So people will say, like, I played this hand and it went this way, and then I got to this point, and what should I do- have done, or, you know, but they won't say what happened when the other player flipped over the cards, and they find out if they won or they lost, uh, and, and when people do that, people in these forums will beat up on them, and, and the idea, which is really interesting, it doesn't exactly translate to science, but it's pretty close, is that there are, there, there's a set of things that you don't know, right? There's unknowns, and the major unknown is what, the, the, or the, uh, the main unknowns are what cards does the other player have, what cards could they have? What's their strategy? How are they approaching the game? Um, you can take those, and, it, and once you like plug in assumptions to them, then you can do a principled analysis. You can say, like, if this person would never play these cards in this way, then you can safely assume, you know, you can do the math, and it's literal math and whatever. Um, but what, so, so it's like, it's kind of similar that there's like in science, there's like principled, like we know random assignment and there's like principled things we can do to get to an answer. And there's unknowns. We don't know whether the hypothesis is right or not. Um, and at least in the, in this poker, in the poker community, it's like, it's become a norm and newcomers always come in and they'll post these things and they'll say, 
here's what happened and all the old timers will, you know, and people in poker communities are not very nice. They'll be like, fuck you noob, you know, don't tell us the results. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. you know, and people will like when, when people, people will say you're being results oriented. That's like a very harsh criticism of how somebody analyzes (laughs) a poker hand. And and that's a phrase results oriented. And I'll say, don't be so results oriented. It doesn't matter that one time random chance went against you. Um, you made the right principled decision or that one time you sucked out on this guy and you, you made a bunch of money. But like, if you do that over and over again, you'll lose. Right. Um, yeah. And so anyway, I thought I, I, it's really interesting that like, even in, despite people's natural tendency, there is this norm and this ethos. And, and so it's kind of like a community norm that works against that. And we, you yeah. know, arguably like, you know, we have some of that in science or we, we aspire to it. But I think the registered reports format is really taking that in the same way, like you don't post your results, you say, you know, well, you don't even know the results if you do a registered report. And so you can't Mm -hmm. possibly let it influence your judgment about whether it's a good experiment or not. Yeah, I think we need to move a lot more in that direction, but I can anticipate what the criticisms are going to be, right? So poker is a closed system. There are absolute probabilities about what could happen and so on. Whereas in research, there's unanticipated things like what if your experimenter shows up high and blah, blah, should you throw out those participants or not? And so uh, there's, I think, two good reasons to not be results blind and both of them can be addressed and rolled. And I think we can, we can get to a point where we can address both of them. So one is my reason that why I'm not results blind when I review or edit, which is that the, currently our standards don't require authors to provide enough information for me to evaluate the quality based only on the method and design. Mm-hmm. Um, if, the, if we fix that, if we lived in a perfect world where there was a lot more transparency, a lot more reporting, um, then I would be much more comfortable evaluating things results blind. But as I talk about in my paper on quality uncertainty, we're basically like trying to evaluate a paper just based on the shiny outside exterior. We're not allowed to look like, so the analogy I used was like looking under the hood of a car or whatever. And so then it's like, well, if I don't have a lot of information about the process, then I look at the results because that gives me some clues about how much flexibility there was in the process. So if the authors aren't required to tell me about flexibility in data collection analysis and so on, then I see, you know, p-values or whatever. I see things in the results that can point to, that can give me some insight about the process. But I would much, much rather just directly have that information about the process. So I would commit to going to results blind reviewing at least as a reviewer, if I if the journals required authors to be a lot more transparent. The second reason against results-blind evaluation, and this is more like on the author's side rather than the reviewers or, or editors, but like let's say I want to pre-register and and you're you want you're asking me to absolutely hundred percent commit to the key analysis that I pre-registered no matter what. I think it's a legitimate concern to say, well, what if there are unexpected weird things in the data? What if a variable that I expected to be normally distributed wasn't? Or what right. if there were a lot more outliers or outliers in a particular shape that I hadn't anticipated? And so one solution to that, that was a talk at APS by Rob McCoon in, in the symposium I organized, which I thought was an amazing talk. I really hope other people have a chance to hear him talk about this. Um, he said that he co-taught a class with a cosmologist and the cosmologist would ask him, so do you guys perturb your data? And he was like, excuse me? And the cosmologist was like, do you perturb your data? And so he got to talking to this cosmologist and learn more about what this means. And apparently this is a common practice in at least astrophysics, maybe physics more generally, I think. 
um, which is like you have you ask someone else, not part of your search team, to add noise to your data, and it could be a bunch of different things. It could be literally just adding noise. It could be flipping the distribution, so randomly deciding whether or not to multiply a distribution by minus one, um, swapping labels on cells or variables, swapping data points, things like that. And different kinds of perturbations have different implications for whether you can still do quality checks on your data, but some kinds of perturbations um, preserve the integrity of those quality checks without letting you know what implications they would have for your key analysis. So you can identify outliers, you can identify multivariate outliers, you can identify non-normal distributions, you can decide how to transform them, how to exclude them, et cetera, in a way that can't possibly favor mm -hmm. your the outcome that you want because you don't know what implication will have for the outcome that you want, either because you don't know which variables are which or which data points are which or things like that. So you make some alterations to your planned analysis based data-dependent alterations so you don't do exactly what you pre-registered necessarily, but it's still mostly yeah. safe from confirmation bias and outcome bias. So I think that's really cool. I think that's something that we should consider borrowing from from physics, yeah. at least in some cases. Yeah. So I, I've actually done a little bit of that, um, and oh. specifically because of Rob's uh, article in Nature about it. So we, I, we haven't done a full-blown blinded analysis, but for um, exclusions, for non-compliance and outliers, we now and we pre-registered it, um, and so it was. You know, in one instance, for example, it was kind of a new, uh, a newish paradigm. And we always worry about like people who will just like click through the Likert scales and whatever. And, and there are certain patterns you can say like if somebody puts all the same number, all threes, then you can kick them out. But you know, sometimes you just kind of like look at somebody's responses and you're like, oh, that person was fucking around. Um, and there's different ways, or you can there's different statistical checks that are kind of like suggestive but not, you know, definitive or whatever. And so we didn't want to commit to an a priori set of exclusion criteria. That it's like, what if we look at the data and somebody was fucking around in a way that we didn't anticipate? And so what we did this was uh, this was it was group data. Um, there were dyads and triads and tetrads or whatever. But anyway, we all of our main analyses were between-person analyses. And so, yeah, somebody just broke the links between the different members of the group. And then they handed it to somebody else. And that person could go through and say and just eyeball the data and do all the sort of qualitative graphic, graphical methods and whatever and say, like, are we going to exclude any of these data points with no possibility of linking it to any of the hypothesis testing analyses because we'd broke, randomly broken the data apart. Um, and so I think that that was like a small version of what Rob's described. And mm -hmm. it was, you know, it was really helpful and it was easy. It was like, it was, we were doing the same thing we would have done. It's just with one little extra step of like somebody just, you know, like delinked the data and scrambled the order. Um, and then we did what we would have done anyway. Um, yeah, I think that that would be really easy to scale up into like you know other parts of the analysis. I want to talk about one other objection to results-blind analysis, which um, I think is an obvious flaw, but I also think it's kind of like a, like a tempting um, objection. So um, I've heard people talk about there are different versions of this. Sometimes people talk about like engines in a different way than Samin talks about engines. Um, or um, another version is this sort of cake analogy. So the idea is that um, one way to evaluate whether you've executed the process of baking a cake correctly is do you end up with a cake? And so like looking at the results of your cake baking process tells you a lot about whether you did the process correctly. And so I've heard people 
make that analogy to scientific experiments, right? So if you find an effect, then that tells you that you executed the process of the experiment correctly. And the obvious flaw with this um, is that there's no parallel to a false positive in the cake analogy, right? So if you get a cake, then like you're done like that that's i don't know have you had like vegan yeah i was gonna say maybe maybe like a poison cake is like a false positive cake um but i'm sure they're good vegan gluten-free cakes i just haven't had them (laughs) so actually i do have an example of a false positive cooking story which is uh one time when i was in graduate school i got these mustard greens at the market and i made this like sauteed mustard greens with like some like uh um like pepper oil and that kind of thing. And I ate this dish and the, like the spice of the, like the mustard spice and the like pepper spice and all that was like just at this perfect threshold where I literally got a buzz off of it. It was like I had taken some kind of a drug or something. Like I, I was eating these mustard greens and I was like, holy shit. And I tried over and over, and I was never able to replicate that. I would like go, I would, for like a year. I would like buy mustard greens. I would use the same jar of like pepper sauce and whatever. Anyway, um, uh, so yeah. <laughs> so the the analogy reminds me of when I was I was at an interdisciplinary meeting on replicability and what we call p hacking. This other person from another field called testing to a foregone conclusion, and that's what the kick baking analogy is, right? It's like you already know the conclusion. The conclusion is you should end up with a cake mm-hmm. or you should end up with a, right. a significant yes. effect exactly. that supports the hypothesis. So we're going to keep testing until we get the cake, right? That's fine for cooking, but for science, it's a problem because you've already, you've put the cart before the horse. You've already decided what the right answer is, and yes. then you're just going to keep tweaking things until yeah, you get that right, answer. Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Like the cake is, yeah, the, the analogy, yeah, it's, it's a weird analogy. So I, I have one more objection to this idea of results blind, which uh, I think is maybe worth discussing, um, which is just that some results are actually more important than others. Um, So if you try to cure cancer, if you take a shot at curing cancer and you don't, it's not as exciting as if you take a shot at curing cancer and you do. If you run the exact same experiment in parallel universes and in one universe it doesn't work and the other it does, and curing cancer is obviously a sort of hyperbolic example, right? But like... You know, some results advance knowledge and, you know, in whatever way you're describing, right? And at least if we're talking about uh, selective journals, so we're not talking about like a plus one kind of model where, where it's, it's, you know, not supposed to be based on impact. But if we're, if we're going to continue to have selective journals, but also even if we're not, even if we had like a plus one kind of publish everything or just a world where we publish everything, It's still the case that in people's attention, they're going to filter that way, even if the journals don't do the filtering, right? Like, you're going to notice, remember, care more about certain results than others, and that that that's okay. It's like it's okay to be more excited about a, a successful cure for cancer than a failed cure for cancer, and that maybe we should give more prominence and more, you know, um, precious journal space or precious attention space to those results. I have a devastating objection to that point. Please. Um, (laughs) So I think that might be true in medicine or in some fields. I don't think in psychology we have these like bright line 
distinctions between results that are interesting and results that are not. And I get frustrated when I see editors and reviewers try to predict what's going to be interesting to people and what's not. And there's one paper in particular that I'm thinking of that I won't identify, and I won't identify the reviewers, but one of them may or may not have been one of you guys. And the reviewers both said, this is sound, but you know, not that interesting. I'm not sure it's worthy of publication. And I published it anyway, and it has now been one of the most downloaded papers ever in that journal, gotten tons of media attention and so on. And I, I, I know what you're talking that. about, and I stand by my review. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. And I don't think that was the only reason for your review. I think there were other objections, but not like not huge flaws in the design or things like that. I think that when we try to predict what's going to be, you know, like important or uh, get a lot of attention or whatever, like sure, if it's if it's a I thought this like I thought that watching this Netflix show would cure cancer, and it turns out it doesn't. Okay, yeah, that, like we could rule that out as not worth publishing, not interesting, or whatever. But I think that's not very realistic, at least in social and personality psych. Maybe it's realistic in other fields, but I don't, I don't think in social and personality psych we're very good at predicting what's going to have impact, other than like things by famous people are going to have more impact. But that's not a good reason to so, favor them. So, so I don't want to. I, I know what you're talking about. That had a public impact i i stand by yeah. my statement that as a scientific sure. advance that anyway whatever but uh yeah. um i i do think I, I i mean i agree with you up to a point i i was using a hyperbolic example of curing cancer but i also i think it it is the case that some results are more interesting yeah. than others i, I don't, don't think, think there's any way to get around that yeah though. yeah i don't deny that i just think it's not as big of a problem as people make it out to be because we already are so bad at predicting what's going to stimulate more research or not. So like, I think, so I agree that, that probably the examples in psychology are not, um, not really comparable to the, the cancer analogy. And that we, I, I definitely think that we, um, are overconfident in our ability to predict what's going to be important or influential or interesting or whatever. And I think we should care about it way less than we do. But at the same time, if you take all of the social psych research that's out right now and what, that we question um, in terms of its replicability, um, if all of those people came out with those findings initially and just said like, oh, turns out this this manipulation has no effect or this effect doesn't exist or, you know, like, you know, standing this way or doing this effortful task or, you know, whatever doesn't affect anything, we would be not interested in those things. Yeah. And I think I'll concede that not everything is cut out to be a registered report. So I think that, and I think, I don't know how many of the rejected proposals for registered reports are rejected on the grounds of, well, it would only be interesting if it came out a certain way, but I suspect some of those rejections are on that basis. Um, and that's valid. I I agree with you. You know, I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit. I think, I think that argument gets used a lot, and I think it's a valid argument, but it gets overused. Yeah. I mean, I think the you know where I come down on it. I was sort of setting up the counter argument more strongly than I endorse it. But you know, I I do think that there's there the the structure of the question that produces that kind of thing is often uh, like wouldn't it be cool if, or wouldn't it be interesting yeah, if, or right. wouldn't it whatever. Um, and if it's not, then it's not interesting. And if it is, then it's interesting. And, and I guess I would say that one, the, um, that often in my experience overlaps with the designing the research so that it can only be diagnostic. So it doesn't tell you that it's not true. And yes. that leads people down this, like, you know, whether it's p hacking or whether it's just like, 
you know, crafting a narrow experiment that only shows that, that's replicable that but that doesn't generalize, right? But you know, I I also think that you know even so I think that's a big part of it. But even if you take that out, there's still always going to be some questions that are going to be like, it would be cooler if it comes out this way than if it comes out that by whatever even by a formal scientific definition of cooler. Um, and I, so I think that in order for this idea of sort of registered reports and results-oriented or not being results-oriented to, to really take hold, if we're going to have selective journals, that it's going to require journals to be selective on the coolness of questions rather than the coolness of results. And that's a really, I think that's going to require a real difference in how people, like, when we, you know, that's going to require, for example, journals to get away from impact factors and citation metrics because I think it's going to be inevitable that the cooler results are going to get cited more. Um, and and I think that if a journal's goal is to publish research that's cited more, then you know it's it's hard to justify if that's really your ultimate outcome that you're maximizing. It's hard to justify publishing stuff that would have been cool if it came out one way and was worth trying, which is the registered report criterion. It was like, it, it was, it would have, we, it was so cool. It would have been so cool if it came out that way. And this was such a good way of trying to find it that we thought it was worth doing. Um, but it just didn't work out. And, and journals are going to have to be okay with publishing that if they're going to take the registered reports route. Well, only if they only take the registered reports route. Right. And I don't, I don't know what Chris Chambers would say, but I don't think this, I don't think even he would say that everything should be a registered report. I think there should be room. We'll, we'll hear from him if he does. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Um, I think that's fine for some journals to only publish registered reports, but if all journals only publish registered reports, and what would we do, we do with all the existing data that can still we can still learn a lot from? Like, I wouldn't be able to publish anymore, um, but that would I guess that wouldn't be the biggest tragedy in the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that uh, I think we've been talking for uh, a good good chunk of time. Our our listeners, if they're still with us, are. Uh, probably uh well thank you for listening um so do do we do we feel like we've done that one justice yeah yep. awesome all right well i think that wraps up our episode today so thanks to everyone for listening um you can if you aren't already you can subscribe to us we're on itunes uh also you can steal your mom's phone and subscribe her that worked really well for me yes subscribe <laughs> every phone that you have access to uh we're on the web at www.theblackgoatpodcast.com you can email us letters at the black coat podcast the black coat podcast.com don't put the blah blahs in uh we're on twitter at black goat pod we're on Facebook, too. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And goodbye until next time.